This time, we're taking a look at the bureaucratic noir dystopian film Brazil. And along the way, we ask, what led Robert De Niro to accept such a small part? Could this be an accepted sequel to 1984? And how far would you go to chase your literal dream girl? We're not sharing a wall or a desk on this edition of Force Fed Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Rupp, and I am joined virtually by my friend and co-host, the virtually flying Sean Michael Cole. Ah, uh, yes. And as mentioned earlier, we're discussing Brazil, film from 1985, directed by Terry Gilliam and starring Jonathan Price. Yes. It's a... Uh... A classic, I would say, a cult classic. One of my favorites. I discovered this a couple years ago in college from my, uh, I guess, psychology professor. He would do like just like a short preface. Um, he in his classes for extra credit, he would uh, give us crazy movies to watch, and he would ask you three questions. And if you got the three questions right, then you would get like five points. And so. This was one of them. I remember like Requiem for a Dream was another one. The Bobby Fisher movie. One was like The Graduate. It was just like an array of movies that he felt were exceptional from the 90s to the 40s because he said cinema sucks nowadays. So that's how <laughs> I found out this film. And it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Uh, it changed my life. My I remember my <laughs> philosophy professor in college. He had dyed jet black hair. And I imagine if he had developed anything like that, it would have been like, guess what type of dye I use in my hair? <laughs> yeah? So, Brazil is a bit of an uh, a misnomer of a title for the film. Like, you, you're, you're not going to understand the title of the film unless you've watched it. So, before we get into that, let's provide a, a brief synopsis of everything. So, in a dystopian near future, bureaucrat Sam Lowry begins investigating a case of mistaken identity that resulted in the death of an innocent man. But during his investigation, Sam meets a beautiful woman, and in an effort to help her, he winds up causing more harm than good. And the plot thickens. The plot thickens. Yes, it does. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Your typical tale of the unwilling hero. <laughs> Not even actually... unwilling. He's more of an accidental <laughs> hero. And, yeah. <laughs> and I use hero in air quotes there because he doesn't really do anything heroic. No, no, he does not. And it is definitely the 80s because nowadays if there was an accidental hero, they would have an eight pack, be six foot five with incredible hair and probably the Rock Johnson. So yeah, or <laughs> it's just this movie yeah. or uh, Chris Pratt. I mean, I think he would be the accidental hero. Yes, he would. The accidental hero that was just ready to d battle anyone. <laughs> so let's jump into the uh, who is in this. So this is a classic. So this guy, the director is Terry Gilliam. And um, I don't know if you're a fan of Monty Python. I definitely is. I am. I grew up on it. And Gilliam is, was in Python in the 70s. And then he became a film director and a writer of these crazy, weird art house films. We covered him in uh, 12 Monkeys. So this is another take. Have you, We maybe we talked about this, I don't know, it was like a year ago. Yeah, so we're getting on a year since our last Terry Gilliam appearance on the show. And as you mentioned, he was a pretty prominent member of the Monty Python uh, uh, comedy troupe. Uh, he directed Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but he also directed uh, Time Bandits and Jabberwocky, which he kind of calls his mind-bending fantasy films. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really- All of his films. It's really hard to kind of pin down what Terry Gilliam's style is because he doesn't really have one. His films don't have a straightforward uh, plot that's easy to describe. He use a uses a lot of- tilted angles a lot of wide angle shots and put oftentimes puts the yeah. actors as close as he can um to the camera itself and it's just he's he's very anti-hollywood it feels like he's very just he's his own brand of filmmaker and he's inspired many after him 
<laughs> oh yeah, definitely influential because we see his extreme close-up style nowadays translate into British cinema. I think one of the more um, more contemporary examples I can think of is director Tom Hooper, who did uh, uh, The King's Speech, um, Les Miserables from a few mm. years ago. Unfortunately, he kind of um, screwed the pooch by directing Cats last year. So think uh, think Tom Hooper is in director jail for a little bit. <laughs> I didn't know he picked up that train. Yeah, I don't Ooh. know why. I think, think he could make it less weird. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Terry Gilliam, folks, he directed and wrote this freaking film. Uh, who's in it? I know you mentioned uh, Robert De Niro as one person. Who else? Yeah, Robert De Niro has more of a minor role as uh, the repairman named Harry Tuttle, but he originally wanted the part yes. of Jack Lint but he was denied that role. But Terry Gilliam then offered the role of Harry Tuttle. And we don't need to go into Robert De Niro's filmography. I think it really kind of speaks for itself. I mean, yes. And I think the guy that got the role that he initially wanted was, I think he might be a sir. I don't know. But he's another member of Monty Python, Michael Palin. Uh, he was offered the role that uh, I guess De Niro wanted, but it was like a deal already that Gilliam promised Palin. So he's like, sorry, man. Here, I'll write you in this crazy role. Yeah, uh, Gilliam thought that Michael Palin, uh, being more of a family man and a husband, he thought that he could offer more of a juxtaposition between his his character uh, himself and Jack Lint, who's just this apparently just this torture master. Yeah, <laughs> terrible, brutal human. Yeah, but also starring uh, Jonathan Price as Sam Lowry. Um, I didn't know too much about Jonathan Price before. I've seen him in several movies recently. He was on Game of Thrones for a little bit, but he was primarily yeah. a stage actor during the 70s and 80s and even won a Tony Award in 1977. Yeah, he was very much in, in, uh, engrossed into that. I know I saw him in like Pirates of the Caribbean. He was in a couple of them. But, I mean, he kind of got more of his claim to fame, I think, this past year from the Netflix film, The Two Popes. Like, that was like his, I think he got an Oscar nod for that, if I'm correct. Yeah, unfortunately, he didn't win because no one was going to defeat Joaquin Phoenix this year. Well, but yeah. he was great in that. Oh, yeah. Great film. If you, I don't know if you saw it or not. Oh, yeah, I've watched it. I've watched it in the early days of Pandemic. <laughs> yes we also have another i guess i think he's british i can't i'm not sure but ian holm i know he uh he was in lord of the rings as uh bilbo baggins yeah he was also the old old bilbo baggins he wasn't martin freeman he was from one yeah but he was also in alien he was ash the android mm -hmm. in that film he was also starred in chariots of fire and was in time bandit so he was kind of uh he was already well-known uh, when Brazil came out. Yeah, he's had an illustrious career. Um, who else? We got Bob Hoskins, who another, yeah, another entry for Bob Hoskins in our uh, <laughs> filmography. Holy crap. Uh, we also get uh, Kim Greist as Jill Layton, the love interest in the film. Mm -hmm. She was not the only one considered for the role. I mean, um, there's a long list of names here. I got Ellen Barkin, Jamie Lee Curtis, Rosanna Arquette, and Madonna were all considered for the role. Which is just nuts to think about. That's crazy. But she got it. Hey, kudos to her, man. I guess she was big in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, we, we got Catherine Helmond as Ida Lowry, Sam's mother. And I read that she she had to wear her makeup mask for ten hours a day, and she, oh, that's not her scenes even had to be delayed because she had blisters that were on her face oh. caused by this mask. Jesus Christ, that's insane! That talk about commitment. Kudos to you, Miss Helmut. <laughs> and oh. Fun fact, I don't know if we said this, but I guess Tom Cruise was considered for the role of Sam Lowry, what uh, Jonathan Pierce Price ended up getting. Yeah, which makes me wonder what this movie would have looked like if Madonna <laughs> was Jill Layton and Tom Cruise was Sam Lowry. <laughs> A lot of running, Chris. A lot of A running. Lot of running. <laughs> but it, 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 it would definitely be a prettier film. I mean, because mid-80s Tom Cruise, that is a pretty, pretty man. 
<laughs> yes, instead of uh, instead of Sam Lowry flying in like the eagle costume, it would just be Tom Cruise running, wearing the armor, <laughs> running through the, the clouds. <laughs> oh, so boom, baby! So that's the cast. We gave the synopsis. Let's dive into this puppy. Yeah. So I was surprised to read out that there was some controversy on the script, pretty mm-hmm. much caused by Terry Gilliam. And for the longest yeah. time, he denied, denied, denied that his screenwriting partner for this was a man by the name of Charles Alverson. And he, mm-hmm. Gilliam flat out said, Alverson did not dr- help me on the first draft. I wrote it all myself. But then the first draft was published and it included a lot of notes and suggestions from Alverson, which ultimately made it into the film. So because Terry Gilliam's a, a, a bit of a turd, he had to change his story. <laughs> He's a big fat liar, is what he is. You know, and I've I've noticed this a lot from Terry Gilliam is that he'll say one thing, and then about five years later or so, he'll totally backtrack that and say, "Well, I didn't say that. I didn't mean that." <laughs> I guess I guess his memory, you know, it's just. I mean, what a that's what you get for the American-born British uh, guy, you know. I mean, when you're born in, uh, what, where is he from? Minnesota? I mean, you're the non-British member of the Monty Python. I mean, these things are going to happen, you know? Right. You have all this sophistication of a, of, of a British gentleman, but you have all the, the vices and horrible habits of American men. <laughs> exactly. He, he's a war within himself, man. That makes me wonder how much of the uh, film was actually like his idea, you know? Makes me curious, like with all of his films, like how much of them are his original thoughts. I would say you know? most of the film is Gilliam's brainchild, given the rest of his body of work kind of falls in line with this whole um, line of satire, bureaucracy, fantasy. So I would say most of the film falls in line with Gilliam's mind. That's fair. Yeah. Because I think. The writer, Charles Alverson, he was kind of miffed that he didn't get like an Oscar nod or anything. Well, yeah, and that could be why Gilliam flat out said, no, he didn't write it. I did. I want the Oscar credit. Man, man, man. <laughs> man, I want the prestige. Meh. <laughs> it's like, all right, chill out, bro. But this film, nonetheless, could you say it's got um some ties into like 1984 and all that business? Well, yeah, even Gilliam has stated that Brazil was inspired by George Orwell's classic novel, but... He's also admitted to never having read the novel, which is weird to me. But they didn't have, like, Wikipedia back in the 80s. No, so. right, but they still had a library. <laughs> but, like, they didn't have Spark Notes. So how did, what, did he just, like, read the cover and was like, hey, that's enough for me. You're like, <laughs> I mean, what, go get a spot of tea now. Like, what, how did he... How are you inspired, but you didn't read it? Maybe like his wife read it and I don't, gave him like a brief synopsis. Maybe it was one of those things where he was in a book, like an English class and everybody else did a book report on it except for him. <laughs> and he was like I one of the last, and he was one of the last people to go for a book report. So he, you know, just pretty much threw together what everybody else said about in their book report and turned it into a movie. Yeah. All right, all right, I'll take that. I'll take that. Although, really, a lot of it does fit well with the novel. I'm, I'm, I was surprised, and it was originally the film was originally developed with the title of 1984 and a half. Oh, okay. So I think this was intended to kind of serve as a quasi sequel to 1984. Okay. I mean, I've never read 1984, so I can't say. Well, I don't know. Have you? Yes, I have. It's a, it's an amazing book. Do you think, would you say in your opinion, this is kind of like a sequel? It would be a solid one? You know, I would, like I said, I would say it's more of a quasi-sequel because the, the novel ends on a much more dour note than the film does. I mean- Really? Yeah. The, the book, so lobotomy is in <laughs> Tower No. 10? Well, I, well, well, Sam- As long as you're in La La Land. Sam isn't lobotomized. I mean, I'm, he may be lobotomized at the end of the film. It's really kind of hard to tell. Or he's just, you know, sort of tortured and gone by the end that he just retreats into himself. I mean, I mean, Sam is Sam is so blissfully happy in his own mind that he doesn't realize the external pain that's being <laughs> inflicted upon him. 
All right. He just further drifts into madness as the movie goes on. Just kind of. Whereas in 1984, the two main characters are captured by the government, tortured, and they're released back into society and they're, they're slaves to the government system again. Jesus. Yeah. Talk about. It's like the people that jump out of the window in China get captured by the nets and then they're thrust back into the Apple factory to make the Apple phone. Right. Nope. All right. You had your freedom for five seconds. Back you go. Back in, you little children. It's like, good Lord. But this is where we get the main title of the film. The The song that's used in Sam's dream sequences is a, t- a title that's a, it's in the um, Portuguese, so I'm probably going to butcher its pronunciation. It's a Acroela do Brasil. <laughs> and um, Yes. And Brazil was kind of picked for the escapist nature of the song as it's used in the film. Mm-hmm. And it is. It is very whimsical. The backtrack throughout this movie is just, I I got it on Spotify after watching this film again. It's really nice. Yeah, Sam is frequently caught up in these daydreams throughout the film where he's always flying around in a suit of armor, which just reminded me of the the myth of Icarus who flew too close to the sun, melting his homemade wings and just plunging to his death. Uh, that Those sequences were pretty, pretty, very Gilliam-esque. Like, folks, picture, picture a world where there's a woman in the clouds captured in a crate or like iron crate and her hair is fluttering and she's surrounded by a see-through veil and there's this man with giant wings, a suit of armor, red crazy perm-like hair and makeup on his face just smiling and flying towards her. It's just, it's really, I swear to God, if you take acid, I'm sure this movie is just like incredible. Well, yeah, and it's it's Sam's fantasy. that Himself in his, in his fantasy is everything that he's currently not. Yeah, which is... A very interesting uh, thing that he wants to be, you know. I mean, is is that is that what you want to be, Chris? A flying man in a suit of armor? Uh, not really. I mean, I always imagine myself more like you know a John Rambo type character in my fantasies. <laughs> All right, same. I I always thought more John Wick myself now, <laughs> as I've gotten older. Uh, but this film is pretty dope. Um, people say that it's. Part of, it's the second of his trilogy of imagination films, I suppose. You know, yeah, I don't put but much people say again that all the time. I don't put much stock into what Gilliam anoints his films to be because he changes his mind and opinions so much about what his films are and mean to current audiences. Yeah, <laughs> he has no idea. I don't even think he knows anything. No, I mean, he was probably doing so much cocaine with the Monty Python group that even he doesn't realize, hey, I made this movie. <laughs> yeah yeah you did terry well, congratulations but that man though i have to say like he does have a thing for details like his production design on this like all the logos of like ministry of information all the, like the world that he builds and fleshes out um my girlfriend told me she's like she didn't like it (laughs) but she said i didn't like the depiction of how the future was just so dirty and busy it just it was so grotesque and i'm like yeah that's that's kind of like what gilliam does he creates these little worlds that are very very detailed like you can watch this film 50 times and notice something new every time well it's not fun to have a world that's all clean and fresh lines and press clothes and everything it's much more interesting to depict a world that's dirty and broken and messy Mm -hmm. and disorganized in this case despite the the highly quote-unquote organized nature of this bureaucratic system they have set up Mm -hmm. exactly exactly it's the criticism of that it's more i i view it as more like an artistic view artistic criticism of like uh, politics, you know, and kind of like a warning, a cautionary tale to what could be. But it's also, I don't think it's like, because even, well, I guess they, Gilliam and Alverson said that the setting is neither future nor past, and yet a bit of each. It is neither east nor west. <laughs> right. But it could be Belgrade or Scunthrope, 
a drizzly day in February or Cicero, Illinois. So I feel like they have no idea what the heck it is. No, he doesn't know. I mean, and and I think that helps. (laughs) I think that helps kind of insert the film in its own unique, unique time. I mean, it came out in the mid 80s. Even the title card in the film says, you know, sometime in the 20th century. So it just it puts a unique you know, um, time stamp and time capsule itself to, you know, a possible future we could be heading down. Yeah, very much so. I think I think he got some things right with the control of media, like in everyone's lives, you know, how so many people are just like focused on TV and the lackadaisical nature of work, like when they're, you know, doing all the file work and all that, and then the boss goes into his office, everyone just turns on the TV and is like, meh. Everyone just starts messing around and watching John Wayne movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a bit of British humor. I did like um, the depiction of how there's so many regulations and paperwork for everything, because sometimes I feel like that, particularly applying with government stuff, even in college, trying to get financial aid. It's like you have to go to this office to get this paperwork signed. Oh, but then you have to go back to this office and you're like just scurrying around just to get like $500 of government aid. It's like, Jesus Christ, just give me the money. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it does sort of make me wonder how society can devolve into this bureaucratic nightmare landscape. And it is. I don't know. Is it like, because I know the movie, they say it's totalitarian. So it's like more embedded with like Hitler-esque, you know, and like dictatorships. But did you see like a ruling class dictator in this? I mean, I know they broke it up into like the two segments, you know, of the ministry, but I don't know. What were your thoughts on that? I don't know. I mean, it's there could be any number of reasons why the world is the way it is in this film. There's could be there could have been a natural disaster that forced a lot of governments and nations to kind of um coalesce and come together it could be some sort of political upheaval or even war led to yeah. this massive system of documents receipts and tubes running everywhere yes i couldn't believe that when i saw like how everyone's basically confined into like little apartments and the tubes <laughs> the ac goes out and then the guys come in and try to fix it but it's tuttle comes in and he fixes it easy because he's like a a private, I guess, like guy, you know, on the run, but because he's not like fed, he's not working for the government or like under contract, you know, they're after him. But then they call Bob Hoskins in and they're, and they're like, oh, you need to sign this form, this form. Then they break up his house and uh, it's just so much, so much red tape. I think he nailed and not to like hate on fed because I work for the government, but I think he nailed down like bureaucratic nonsense that goes into a lot of like public programs and you know whenever you work for the public it's there's just so many regulations that you have to go through so many hoops yeah i mean tuttle is labeled a terrorist because he's a freelance operator i mean he's he's not doing this <laughs> he's not doing what he's doing for any sort of gratification he's doing it for the greater good whereas the government's yeah. doing it because they want the people to depend on them yeah like, he, I can't believe that you're exactly right. He's basically a freelance plumber, you know, heating and air conditioned repairman. It's so funny. Yeah, uh, and then it it speaks volumes to the characterization in the film because then Spore and Dowser come back and just ruin Sam's apartment and make it uninhabitable. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's terrible, and you see that They're, so many times. They're totally abusing the small, tenuous iota of power that they can lord over individuals. It's like, oh, well, your air conditioning's out. Well, we could come over between 10 a.m. tomorrow and next Thursday. Are you going to be home? You better be home. (laughs) It's just, what? What? I like how... um... When Sam gets promoted, you think like, you know, it's going to be this nicer job and everything. And it ends up being the inverse. Like he goes from having not a cushiony gig, but he pretty much runs his whole office for his, you know, 
terrible, terrible manager that is so. I what? How would you describe him? He's just so. He's horrible at his job. He's horrible. And then he gets this new gig where he's like confined to a little office that he has to literally share a desk through a wall. I mean, it's just terrible. Well, and I think it's it's an indictment on Sam's character because he doesn't accept that promotion for any sort of financial or beneficial reasons. He's doing it solely for the purpose of trying to find out who Jill is and where she is. Yep. Because he keeps dreaming. So, yeah, like he just dreams of this woman and then finds her and then goes after her. Kind of, I don't know, would you say that's creepy? <laughs> yeah, it's a, a little a little creepy. <laughs> the fact that some man is just, yeah, hey, I saw you in my dream. Come back, come back. I'm in love with you. It's yeah, like, what? please. What? <laughs> you've been in, but you've been in my dreams is probably top five of creepy things you can say yeah. to a woman you just met. <laughs> and then saying "I love you" afterwards, it's like, whoa! Jill was in every right to kick his ass out of that car. <laughs> oh yeah, she was. <laughs> God, it was just such a weird, just so interesting how they came to. And like Buttle getting murdered, you know, it's just it's it's fascinating that one piece of paper saying Buttle can cause such like chaos throughout the entire, you know, uproot an entire man's life just because of one letter. Well, and, and the entire movie is built on that premise that it doesn't take much to totally disrupt this system. Yeah. I mean. Right in the beginning of the film, there's a dead fly that falls in the typewriter and causes that typo that ultimately kills Mr. Buttle. And then causes, you know, so much like his clock not waking up or his clock not going off causes him to be late. It's just there's so much like this. This movie just snowballs. It's just a giant snowball. Like it just gets bigger and better and the nonsense just gets greater. Like his mom, the plastic surgery is just insane, but she keeps getting younger. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, to me, his mother is one of the more reprehensible characters in the entire film. She only cares about, like, basically being consumed visually by young men. Like, she just wants to be oogled for days. Yeah, she really falls victim to this sort of vanity that's controlling her life. I mean, all the all the surgery and procedures she's getting on herself and these lavish parties she throws pretty much to show off her ability to attract young men and to show off all the connections she has throughout the government. Yeah, I like I like the uh, dining scene where they have to pick a number of what they want to eat. He says, just give me a steak. And the guy's like, you have to pick a number, pick a number. And. The food they end up getting is just like these, like basically pudding. It's like jello, but it's supposed to be like hamburger, spaghetti, or whatever. Yeah, it looks disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting, but they're in this fancy fine dining restaurant that's getting bombed by terrorists. Just what a conglomerate of just messy. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't think any uh, person or profession or social stature is safe from terry gilliam's wrath in this film because they're bombed in the restaurant and yet all the fancy people continue eating their you know their jelly patties (laughs) despite that there's death and injuries all around them and there's like oh well i i want to keep eating my my jelly so leave me alone i'm rich (laughs) so do you think then to go back to the initial question do you think that this could happen in like the united states well, who's to say we're not dealing with it now? I mean, just having to having to file your taxes or try to get tax write-offs is a nightmare in and of itself. And, you know, God forbid the government misplaces a zero somewhere and the government never admits fault with anything. They'll just oh. change it. So it's like, oh, well, no, we sent you this and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, I it's mean, just... think about the, pro- the think about the process you had to go through just to you know, get your car. It's, you probably had to sign your life away 50 different times on 50 different sheets of paper. Yes, exactly. That's <laughs> just to buy a stupid car. It's, it's, it's insane. Yeah. And we're, we also live in this culture of saving receipts. I mean, as God forbid we get something repaired on our homes 
And then it breaks down a couple of weeks later and like, well, do you have your receipt? Like, oh, no, I don't have it. <laughs> oh, well, tough, tough, tough luck. Sorry. It's like, what? I guess you no! got to pay for this again. <laughs> oh, that's if I had a dollar for every time that's happened to me, I'd be <laughs> at least somewhat decent. I'd have at least somewhat of a vacation fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Although Sam- it, it does make it makes me curious as to like what really happened to Sam's father. Yeah, because you really don't hear much about him. I wonder what happened. Was he murdered? Because it's I it seemed to me like the woman, like his mom, got the money. You know, she wasn't wealthy. My my theory, and it's it's kind of dark, is that she started messing around on him behind his back with a bunch of his work colleagues. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and then he and then and then Mr. Lowry, like either he just up and left and vanished or he killed himself because of the embarrassment. Ah, oh, I would not doubt it. His wife seems exactly she seems the type. Particularly, it's so prevalent when they get to the funeral and he like turns her around and she's like, Shh, stop calling me mom. Well, yeah, and then even he he inserts Jill into the place of his mother. Which was mm-hmm. creepy. <laughs> Very creepy. This man has a lot of problems. <laughs> which, which this man, Sam, could he even be characterized as a hero? Is he even a hero? Like, I don't even know when you watch this. No, he's, he's not because everything he does to, you know, try and find Jill or make things easier for Jill or to clear up the whole Buttle-Tuttle fiasco, all he does is make things worse. Yeah. Every single time he delivers the check to the lady and she just like freaks out. <laughs> he's just, a, I don't even know, like his whole pillage after Jill, like I said, is just so, it's like based in like creepy nonsense. So it's like, all right, who is this man and why, why should we care about him? Right. And he doesn't, he can't offer any sort of condolence to Mrs. Buttle because it's totally outside of what he went there to do he just wanted to give her the refund check and be on his way yeah because it's all part of and the then job she goes then she goes full ham on him like where's his buddy <laughs> yeah he's definitely uh a corporate shill just there to live life and make that money and uh you know do as much work as you have to but he does. I feel he, like that's, I don't know, like maybe because you feel bad for him during the film, like how he's treated with his mom and his life, just like seeing him do something to break the mold. That's why we're supposed to care about him. Right. And he's so, I don't want to say pathetic, but he's just so kind of. <laughs> you can say it. <laughs> he, I would say he's more commonplace in this film than than in other than other characters would be that you just you feel sympathy for him in the circumstances that he's had to go through but everything he does just makes things worse yeah he's not he's it's like if the three stooges you know you ask them for help on the side of the road to fix your tire or change a tire you know it'd just be crazy you'd end up having all your tires popped and your windows smashed in just for like one tire change well we replaced your flat tire but the other three are now uh, all flat and by the way you need new windshield wipers and a transmission so (laughs) that'll be four thousand dollars (laughs) please exactly uh so you know we talked how gilliam is always very close up and interesting angles what did you think of the production and the design of everything the world they lived in the landscape oh the the production design itself is is amazing i mean it's it's some of the best work i've seen from this era of filmmaking um everything the sets feel real and lived in and i i assume the majority of this film was shot on a soundstage and the use of the miniatures as well is amazing and there there aren't too many films we've talked about this before on the show but there just there aren't too many films that utilize miniatures anymore i mean yeah i mean if you look closely enough sure it can bother you if you notice it but it's still just it's better than just oh well the computers can do it easier than we can absolutely back you with that i love the scene where it's kind of like a nudge wink to the audience where he's going into the factory style like buildings, you know, and you see the guy looking over the miniature set 
And it's like, oh, shoot, that's just like a model. But, it, you know, they used a miniature <laughs> in a miniature with the shot. It was so yeah. brilliant. It's oh, very meta. Very meta. This whole film is meta, man. <laughs> Even the cars, just everything. The idea, the scenes with De Niro, what would you say, ziplining through Brazil is just fascinating. Gilliam put so much work into all the scenes, all the sound stages, just incredible. Blows my mind. Yeah, but I mean, we always we always like to ask this when we're discussing films like this, but would you want to live in this type of world? Oh, hell no. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> it, this world looked like it was wrecked with uh, definitely climate change, because when he's driving his car to the lady, uh, to the Buttles, it's just like a desolate wasteland. I mean, there's factories everywhere. It's essentially like industrial age. They just put like big nuclear plants and you live apartments attached to them. I mean, it's just horrible. It just seems everything in life is controlled and run by the Fed. You're just, life is over. Right. Terrible. And that's like not knocking communism or anything because the point of this movie is it's essentially just like one party that just rules. Which is kind of fascinating that our back-to-back films were eugenics and then totalitarianism. Come on, sound it out. I know you can say it. Whatever. The T word. (laughs) Totalitarianism. There we go. Totalitarianism. There we go. I took government. (laughs) But no, hell no. I I uh, I wouldn't want to live in this world. I wouldn't even want to be in power power in this world it would just suck how about you (laughs) you know not you know i'm with you it's just this just seems terrible um even down to the food which again like we can't we can't talk enough about how disgusting looking this food is though my girlfriend said she could see the world becoming like that food wise just because of the cost just blend it up baby makes it easier to eat and all that (laughs) Which is just oh no disgusting. But I mean, hey, people do it already, right? With the shakes, with the kale and everything. So, oh, gross. We're already halfway there, baby. <laughs> Bleh. How did you think uh, De Niro did in this? You know, I mean, he is a shocker when he comes in. You're just like, why is De Niro in this? But what'd you think of his tuttle? Um, you know, it's a good question to ask, especially when we're talking about all of the supporting performances in the role. And I think because Robert De Niro's character has such a major impact on Sam's trajectory in his life, I don't feel like we need more Robert De Niro in this film. I mean, when he when he arrives in his apartment and fixes his air conditioning, you know, he you know, he walks in holding a gun and saying, you know, they're they're after me because I'm a freelancer and like, okay, freelance. What are like, are you here to rob the joint? Like, what's going on here? And then he fixes it and, you know, says like, you know, call me Harry. My friends call me Harry. And then he leaves. He shows up again to make sure Sam is able to get back into his apartment and live in it again. And then he arrives in Sam's final dream sequences and is his savior whereas somebody like kim greist in her performance of jill like yeah kim greist was good but in no way where she was she any sort of turn in any sort of great performance here in this film no she really she really wasn't um it wasn't terrible now this folks this isn't like a Kristen stewart type of performance where she doesn't change her facial expression it's just there really wasn't anything i don't think memorable about her character um she really just played it like i want to get away from this guy who's a creeper i definitely would agree that um de niro was far superior which is fascinating because his character like he basically bails sam out three times and every time sam tries to bail out jill he fails, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, in a lot of ways, Sam is aspiring to be what Tuttle is, but he fails every single time. And in his, in his final failure, he thinks he's helping her by going back to the Ministry of Information, erasing her. But really, all he's doing is just making it easier for you know, those government agents to just kill her in the end. Because, like, well, she's already dead anyway, so what's the difference? Yeah. And track him back to his house and freaking <laughs> kill him. 
I mean, that's he's such an idiot. <laughs> he literally, yeah, he just goes back and boop, gets captured, lobotomized, and in happy land for the rest of his life. Which it's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. I mean, this film does not. It's like two in a row where I would say like this film doesn't really have that happy of an ending. It's not nearly as like um, dark and grueling, I would say, as Gattaca. But when it ends, you're just like, oh, man. Wow. Yeah. And and again, that's more a part of Gilliam's style is that when it ends, it just you, you don't feel happy or sad. I mean, Gilliam has his it's rare where his films have a genuinely happy ending. Oh, yeah. This is definitely one of them where it's like, oh, and I know that he got criticism from Universal about that, where they really wanted to change the ending. They're like, oh, it's got to be happy. Let's test it with a happy ending. And he's like, no, this is my project. We have to keep it as it is. Right. And I read up a lot about this and it was so interesting to read about because I guess Universal even enlisted another editing team to rework the film without Gilliam's permission. Oh, that's bad. And we know what happens when you do that to people's work, whether it's their likeness or their their art, bad things happen. Yeah, and it was just, there was it, it delayed the entire release of the film and Gilliam even took out a full page ad in a variety the Hollywood Trade magazine. He was urging the Universal executives to just release the film. And they they only agreed to release it after Brazil screened it for the local critics in Los Angeles. And after Brazil won the the Film Critics Award uh, for Best Picture, uh, their their big Oscar winning film Out of Africa premiered and Out of Africa would go on to win seven Oscars, including Best Picture. But it was really kind of an embarrassment on Universal's part. Like, hey, you have this other great movie that's expected to win a ton of Oscars and you have another great movie. Like why not just release them both? Like what's going on? Yeah, exactly. Well, poo poo on universal. That's all I can yeah. say. So in spite of poo pooing, did you have any uh, lens flares or anything in this film that kind of took you? For yeah. A <laughs> you know, I did. And you know, we've harked on this a little bit tonight. And but for me, it's just it's the restaurant scene. It really is. It's when that Mater D is practically yelling at Sam to just pick a number instead of ordering his food. <laughs> that was so funny, the incompetence. But I do understand that I can uh, relate to the server because I've been there where it's like, what? Do you, what? Just just tell me what you want. No, read the menu. I'm not I'm not here to like piece the puzzle together. I'm not a mind reader. You know, I left my crystal ball at home. Just just tell me what you want. <laughs> right. So I that's a good one. That's a really good one. I like that. Uh lens, uh, lens flare? I don't know. I don't think I have one. Oh, actually, you know what? I do. It's <laughs> There we go. It's gross. Um the scene where Bob Hoskins characters die, you know, would Tuttle uh, connects their air tube to like the sewer or I guess the bathroom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And their suits fill up with like crap, literal like poop and piss. Oh, my God. It, that gets me every time where I'm just like disgusted. <laughs> I want to throw up. Oh, great imagery. You so, know, I, I admire Gilliam footed, but for me, that's just no, I can't. I'm sorry. So poop gets you every time. Okay. It gets me every time, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of getting uh, getting you every time, did you have a red shirt? A red shirt in this. I guess we could say, well, uh, Buttle. Buttle just got screwed over, I guess, to start the whole thing off. But the poor man, I mean, he just got killed because a fly flew in the machine, the typewriter, and then it just you know, gave the wrong letter. And because of that, his life is over. I just felt so bad for him. Right. How about you? Know, you? I, didn't have a, I didn't have a red shirt, but I had another yellow shirt. Okay. There weren't too many people who died in this movie, but my yellow shirt was Mr. Kurtzman, Sam's boss in records. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> well, all he wants to do is keep Sam in records, <laughs> and he's almost endearing in how nervous he is during the entire Buttle refund debacle. But really, he's just he's got Sam's best interest in heart because he knows if he goes to information retrieval, he's just going to screw it up. Yeah. <laughs> he's so incompetent, though, Kurtzman. <laughs> he is the perfect depiction of uh, your boss that is been there for a while, just got shuffled up, you know, due to longevity, but really has the the peons do all the work for them and they take the credit. Just Ian right. Ian Holm. <laughs> Ian Holm was perfect in that role. So with all of that in mind, let's discuss the legacy of Brazil, shall we? Let's do it. All right, so currently holds a 98% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, as well as an 88% rating on Metacritic. Oh, yeah. So I feel like the Rotten Tomatoes one is a tad high, but again, it's the internet, so who knows? Take that for what you will. Oh, yeah. It's like changed, I'm sure. I would say, I agree. I'd say the Metacritic is good, is more in line. Yeah. So, and while the film was successful in Europe, it only grossed just under $10 million in the North American box office. <laughs> and that was against the film's $15 million budget in 1985. That's how it, and yeah. it didn't help that Roger Ebert gave the film only two stars, calling it hard to follow. <laughs> well, I agree. At the first, I'm this is my third time viewing it, so <laughs> I, I agree with him. But it was nominated for two Academy Awards: Original Screenplay and Best Art Direction. Yes, which so, is now known as Best Production Design. Yes, so that's that's something. I think that's very fair. I think it definitely deserved those two. Yeah, and as you mentioned at the top of the show, it does live on in the annals of cult films. It's consistently rated in lists of the best films of all time, including lists in Time Magazine and Empire Magazine. So the film has had a very, I guess, successful post-release life. Mm-hmm. It has. And there's been like five different edits of this or something that I've seen. There's like the 142 minute cut, the 94 minute cut called Love Conquers All, and then the 132 minute cut. So, I mean, I guess they're out there. It's like Blade Runner, you know? They just can't make up their freaking mind. Right. <laughs> and I think that's as much to do with studio meddling as it is Gilliam not knowing how to edit his vision together. <laughs> That is very true. I heard, though, that this film was, or I read that it's the uh, premise for the video game 2018 We Happy Few, and I've played that game. Yeah, that's another like dystopian, totalitarian uh, government can, trying to control things and keep the population happy. Yep, yep, and it's 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 a weird game. Check it out if, for you gamers <laughs> out there. Yeah, but the film itself is at a very far-reaching influence. Um one thing I noticed when watching the film is that Brazil and 1989's Batman had a very similar look, and that's because Tim Burton had his crew study Brazil for reference, and it's seen as an influence in other films as well, like Dark City, The Hudsucker Proxy, Pi, and Sucker Punch. Oh, that's so, awesome. Kind of like lesser-known cult films, but still very influential amongst this whole dystopian genre. Well, kudos to them. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Rock on, man. Yeah. <laughs> Chris coming so, in with the knowledge, folks. Boom. Ba-boom. <laughs> so what do you say we rate this, Sean, shall we? It's time. So on our unique scale on the Force-Fed Sci-Fi podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party, what do you give to 1985's Brazil? Uh, for this film, ah. Uh, I would say, well, my thoughts are it was great when I saw it the first, second, third time. Um, it's For me, it's really got great repeat viewings. I enjoy the political commentary, production design like we talked about. I think the only problem is um, there really aren't any too crazy standout acting performances, but that's okay. Like they all work in like almost like little vignettes and it's it's definitely a good collage of people. I would say if you like British films, definitely check this one out. It's just everything that 
indie art house weird you know meta film strive to be and for that i would definitely host a viewing party for this film i just can't get enough of oh, it oh wow i love i love brazil it's one of my favorite it changed my life and really altered my uh how i viewed film and respected movies later on so that's my review how about you you know after watching this, in hindsight, I'm glad I put off watching this for so long and finally had a reason to watch it. And I think it's necessary to have some sort of weariness of the world prior to watching it. And I think it's essential for even understanding it. And despite his shortcomings as a hero, I think Sam is someone we can all relate to as at the end of the day, he's just trying to navigate this this world he lives in while while searching for love. And it's a film that's set forth by the most innocuous of reasons, and I love when any film can pull that off. I mean, <laughs> you see Sam at the end of his torture session, and you just think, like, wow, this is all because a fly fell in a typewriter. However, I don't think that this would appeal to a broader audience like some of the other films we discuss. I would say its closest counterpart would be Futurama, but even that's sort of a generous comparison. So while I would immensely enjoy it, but I don't think others would, I would call this film a would own. Awesome. There you yeah. have it, folks. Boom. So high high marks for Brazil. So it's definitely worth checking out if you if you've got the time. Absolutely. So with that being said, it's time to consult our friendly number generator, Major Samantha. Yes, we're going to enlist the help of our friendly random number generator AI, Major Samantha, to select from our list of 118 films. <laughs> and from that list, she has selected... Well, it's not Terminator. It's uh, number five. It is a film from the year 2000, directed by Tarsim Singh and starring Jennifer Lopez and Vincent D'Onofrio. It is The Cell. Wow. All right. Sorry, folks. This is another one that I snuck in there, man. These last three. <laughs> well, let's just... Man, I warned you about sneaking things in, Sean. I know. I can't believe you got these three in a row. But hey, all right. Let's check it out, man. I've never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I haven't either. So that'll be our film for next time. Please watch and enjoy with us. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's all at FourceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, forcefedsci-fi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. So for all of us at the ForceFed Sci-Fi team, we'll see you next time. ForceFed Sci-Fi is written and hosted by Sean Culp and Chris Rupp. Website design, associate producer, and editing by Jeremy Kesky. Artwork designed by Mike Berger. Theme music composed and performed by Custom Anthem.